Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Lemieux Company, a video-first marketing agency. Lemieux Company works to build better content and tell better stories through video. You can find Lemieux Company on Facebook, Instagram, and at lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X. The X is silent. Today's guest is Matt Darby. Now, Matt has a really interesting story. He's the owner of Darby Racing Technology, a company based in Amarillo, which produces high-tech jockey silks. That's the clothing that jockeys wear for horse racing. The jockey for Justify, who won the Triple Crown this year, wore Darby's silks as Justify won the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. So some of the biggest trainers and owners in the industry wear Matt's products. But his connection to the racing industry was accidental. He's a former sportscaster and radio guy, and his career path took him to the American Quarter Horse Association, AQHA, and that led to what he's doing now. I love these kinds of weird career shift stories. So this is fun. Here's Matt Darby. Matt Darby, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I definitely want to talk about speed silks and your entry into uh, the world of race Mm -hmm. horses and all that stuff. But before we do that, I know that you've done a lot of other things before you know you got into it. So tell me how you ended up here in Amarillo in the first place. Uh, I, my family was actually from Southern California. We lived in Huntington Beach. And then when I was four, they moved here to Amarillo. My dad was transferred job. And so we ended up in Texas. And then I grew up here, graduated high school at Amarillo, uh, Amarillo High School, um, went to school at the University of North Texas, came back here in 95. And now here we are. What did your dad do? What brought him here? He was, uh, he was in the military. Okay. And I was very young at the time, so I don't remember. So you don't have like a a memory of Southern California or No, we would, my parents got divorced almost immediately after they moved to Texas. (laughs) Uh, My dad moved back to California. And so, you know, I was one of those um, traveling kids when I was, when I was young and we would go back to California. Yeah. We'd go back to California a couple times a year, me and my two sisters and go see the rest of the family. And, and that was, uh, you know, always an adventure when you're a little kid. Did... Amarillo or the Texas Panhandle feel like home? I mean, despite going back and forth. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, if anyone asks where I'm from, I tell them Amarillo, definitely. I I always consider this to be my home. Did, uh, you know, after you left to go to college, I mean, did you go intending to come back here or was that part of your plan? Uh, No, I really didn't have much of a plan, especially in my 20s. I was sort of a certified idiot through most of my 20s. So, no, I didn't really have a plan. I knew that I wanted to work in radio. Went to school at North Texas Radio Television Film. And uh, started working in radio almost immediately. I think my second year of school, I had a job at a radio station. You've got a great voice for it. Thank you very much. And and that's all I did up until 2006 was work in radio. It's all I ever really wanted to do. And then I lost my job in 2006 and ended up, thanks to another broadcaster, actually, Steve Myers, former broadcaster, I guess you could say. He was working at the American Quarter Horse Association in their video department. And so he called me up and he said, hey, you know, we got an opening in the marketing department and you're familiar with sports media because I had, I had been doing news and sports my entire career. Right. So I had a background in sports media and they needed someone to work in the marketing department for their racing department. And they thought I'd be a good fit. Fooled them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, I spent the next eight years at the American Quarter Horse Association. And part of my job there involved going to horse races all around the country to meet with 
horsemen and track staff and whatnot, just sort of represent the association. And I went to my very first, I knew nothing about horses or horse racing when I took that job. So I got on my very first horse race about a month in with a coworker. Uh, it was at uh, Turf Paradise in Phoenix, Arizona. And by the time the second race had been run that day, I asked him, I said, why are the jockeys wearing baggy silks? And he almost didn't even understand the question that I was asking, which gives you a pretty good idea of the mentality that we've had to overcome with this new product because it's just not something that owners and trainers and jockeys think about, which really surprises me because it's a speed sport. Because even at that time, I mean, if you had looked at speed skating or any of the Olympic sports, you know, you've got athletes that are still wearing very high-tech gear at that point. I actually got the idea. Well, I, I refined the idea after looking at what they did in cycling because cycling, they are fanatical about aerodynamic drag. They spend a huge amount of money and effort to reduce drag by even a tiny amount. And one of the things that they do is they use aerodynamically engineered fabric for their jerseys and their uh, little funny looking shorts. Mm -hmm. And it's made out of a, a textured material. And there are a few different uh, brands out there. And the one that I chose um, works best for ours because it's the most aerodynamically efficient fabric between 14 and 47 miles per hour, which makes it perfect for horse racing. And that's why I chose it. How called, fast is horse racing? Um, Where does it fall within thir that? Thoroughbreds will run about 40 miles an hour. Okay. Yeah. So toward the top of that limit. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, quarter horses run a lot faster than that, but they run much shorter distances. Right. It was one of the things we always had to tell people I worked at AQHA. And so it was, it was that very first race you went to as a newbie in the world yeah. of horse racing that you saw there was a need and thought, why, why are they doing it this way? You and know, and I, when you're I, surrounded by people familiar with the industry who had never had that thought. And, and I asked that why question to a lot of people, a lot of owners, trainers, jockeys, track staff, staff at AQHA, journalists. They all just sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, I, I, I don't know. It's always been like that. They've been doing it this way for 100 years or more. So I really don't know. That's what struck me as so odd. And so I kept yapping about it. And I was talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. Uh, my wife, Darcy, and I are lying there and, and propped up in bed one evening watching TV. And something came on TV that set me off again. And I said, oh, we got to do this thing with the silks. And, blah, blah, blah. and she said, look, just do it or don't do it. But you're driving me crazy. So that was the night that I decided, OK, I'm going to do it. I'm actually going to try to figure out if this thing can be done. What needs to be done and can I do it? And I spent about the next two and a half years developing the product. Do you going remember from, what year that was that you made that decision? Oh, gosh, it would have been... 09, maybe? Okay. 08? Something like that? So maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I, had, I had been at AQHA for a couple of three years. I was there for eight total. So I spent the next couple of years learning about every aspect of this business from the ground up. I, the industry, the technology. I had to learn all about the garment manufacturing business and how to do it. I had to learn about silks. And being a jockey or a trainer and, and how that industry operates, I had to learn how to run a business. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I tell my sister-in-law who helps cook our books, I, I said, these are the classes that I changed majors to avoid. Right. You know, all, these, right. all these business classes that I, I don't want to fiddle with this kind of stuff. But no, I had to learn that. Had to learn about industrial scale dye sublimation and garment assembly and taxes and website building and Social media as a marketing tool. I, I, I had to learn all of these things because no one else was going to do it. It was just me. I, I still am to this day, more or less, 
a one man band. The only thing that I don't do is keep track of the books. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. And physically assemble the product. That's actually done by a third-party vendor in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. So tell me about that, that education, the, the process of that. Because you can, you can do a lot of research online. You, yeah. know, you can read about how things are made or where suppliers are. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a point where you were like traveling to different places to figure out, can this be done? Can this fabric be used? Can we make it look this way? A lot of web searches, a lot of phone calls. Um, one of the best things that happened was me talking to actually the daughter of a family friend slash coworker of my wife's. Uh, she's a, a seamstress. And she sort of told me how the industry kind of sort of works. She said, what you need to do is create what's called a, a, a pattern, an industrial pattern for a garment, which is surprisingly complex and a really specific skill that you have to be trained to do, even for something like a T-shirt. I mean, think about it. If you had to make a T-shirt today, what would you do? I have a clue. Yeah, no idea. Yeah. What you have to end up with, basically, is all the puzzle pieces that are cut out and sewn together to form a a, a garment, any garment. And, okay, so I had to go do that. Well, she helped me with my very first prototype. She built the pattern. I went and found a friendly jockey that I knew through AQHA, uh, G.R. Carter Jr., by the way. Thank you very much, G.R. And he was my model jockey. And so I brought these ridiculous-looking you know, alpha prototypes. And he agreed to try them on. And I took tons of photos, asked him tons of questions. We came back, made changes to the pattern again, drove back out to the track in New Mexico. He did it again. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, that process just went along until we finally had what we felt was a launchable product. And then I had to figure out how to get color on it because, you know, it's white fabric. Right. But if you have silks, well, it could be red, white, and blue, or they could be green and gold. You never know. So I had to figure out how to get actual patterns and color onto the fabric before it was assembled. And that was a whole, that could be an entire episode of this podcast right there. But I know you don't want to hear about it. But again, it's one more technical aspect of the industry that I originally knew nothing about and had to become an expert on. To, to give listeners an idea, if, if they can picture maybe racehorses, yeah. but maybe can't picture what a jockey looks like. Yeah. So give me a before and after. Tell me what a jockey was wearing before you introduce speed silks and then what it looks like now when they've put the, you know, the form fitting yeah. silks on. I'll back up a little farther than that. Let's say you're the owner of a racehorse. Okay. Let's say you go buy your first racehorse tomorrow. What you have to do now is design your silks as the owner, Boyette Racing or whatever. And you, let's say you want it to be green with a big gold star on the chest and you want gold sleeves with green stripes. I like it. Let's do okay, it. Okay. Beautiful. Well, what you've got to do now is find somebody that manufactures silks and say, my silks look like this. I need two sets, please. And until we came along, generally, you'd call some little old lady in, you know, you'd call Aunt Edna in Edmond, Oklahoma or whatever, some lady working out of her attic. And she had, she would, okay, so she'd pull off a bunch of green fabric off this roll and she'd pull off some gold fabric off this roll. She'd cut out the shape of the star. She'd cut out the stripes sew everything together, and send it to you. Well, we don't do that. We manufacture speed silks basically the same way that Under Armour manufactures a compression shirt. You know, we've got to go through industrial-scale processes. It's not something that you can just do inside your own house. Right. It requires massive, very industry-specific dye sublimation hardware, for example. That's how we dye the fabric, is through a process called dye sublimation. 
And then once that happens, well, you got to cut out these puzzle pieces and sew them together. But the Aerodimplex fabric that we use is really hard to work with. It's just incredibly thin, stretchy, fussy, <laughs> pain in the butt fabric. And so we had to find a specialist cut and sew operation in St. Paul, Minnesota, that specialized in stretch fabrics, four-way stretch fabrics and athletic wear and whatnot. And they've been making speed silks for us ever since for the last five years. And so now the jockeys who are wearing your speed silks, they are as aerodynamic as possible. Kind of. It depends how much of my, our stuff they buy. We actually okay. have four different products. We've got what's called the jacket. And that's what everyone thinks of as the shirt or okay. the silks themselves. We've got what's called a cap, which is actually a helmet cover that goes over the big giant protective helmet that they have. We also make jockey pants. And then we make something else called boot sleeves, which don't exist. They didn't exist until we invented them. And a boot sleeve is just what it sounds like. It's basically a black tube of aerodimplex fabric that the jockey slides down over his tall patent leather riding boot. Okay. The, the idea being that since aerodimplex is actually more aerodynamically efficient than even a, even a perfectly smooth surface. Really? You, you, want, you want to get as much of the jockey as possible covered in this texture. Because aerodynamic drag, and this could also be its own episode, aerodynamic drag is critical in horse racing, way more important than most people realize, far more important than weight, which for the last hundred years has been what jockeys and trainers have obsessed on. Right. Not drag, but weight. That's why every jockey is five foot one. And yeah. It's why they weigh pounds. so there's, and this is going to sound a little gross, but at a lot of tracks, when you go into the, the jockey's room, the locker room where the jockeys just keep all their stuff <laughs> and you go into the bathrooms, there's actually a puke stall <laughs> and, and that toilet is just, just for puking in. And this doesn't happen a whole lot, but sometimes before a big race, if a jockey wants to shed an extra few ounces right before the race, it might as well. That's the, the length to which they'll go to cut a little bit of weight. And as it turns out, it's not really weight that's terribly important. It's aerodynamic drag, almost exclusively, as a matter of fact. When the, when the horse leaves the gate, you know, it weighs 1,100, 1,200 pounds. The few seconds, the first hundred yards or so that it takes for that horse to get up to speed, it's, it's having to overcome its own inertia, its own mass. Right. It's got to go from zero to 40. That requires a lot of energy. But like Isaac Newton taught us, a body in motion tends to want to stay in motion. And so once he gets up to speed, his own momentum helps carry him forward. And at that point, the only force he's really fighting is aerodynamic drag. That's the idea that we're trying to get across to all of these horsemen out there that buy silks. Was it a hard idea to get across? Because it, it seems counterintuitive to me that everybody's so focused on the weight of the jockey. Jockeys mm -hmm. are, you know, vomiting before the race, yeah. but nobody had really thought, hey, maybe, maybe we could shed some, you know, milliseconds with our clothing. I mean, uh, it sounds to me like an Olympic swimmer wearing, you know, big floppy board shorts exactly. while he's in a race. I'll tell you how I'll tell you how, how much it surprised people in the industry and and continues to do so to this day. Back in the early 90s, um, the American Quarter Horse Racing Journal, which at the time was the industry standard magazine that the AQHA published for the racing industry, they um, hired a scientist, a doctor from MIT, and they said, we want, we want you to help us really measure in a scientific fashion the real speed of a racing American Quarter Horse. Everyone knew they were the fastest horses, but they didn't know how fast. They said, we want you to catalog this scientifically and make it official. And so he got his little assistant and they spent several weeks at tracks running and videotaping and timing horses. And at the end of the study, 
He actually turned it into a study, not on the speed of the horse, but rather the importance of aerodynamic drag in horse racing. Hmm. He said it is absolutely critical. It's 95% aerodynamic drag and 5% weight. He said, that's what, that's what's holding the horse back. It, it, it surprised even him because he expected to write a paper on the speed of the horse and ended up writing a paper on aerodynamic drag in horse racing. So when you were getting started, you know, having an idea that seems intuitive to somebody outside the industry, for, for whatever reason, nobody within the industry had really thought of it. Yeah. D- did you have sort of a pressure as you were developing it, thinking, okay, somebody is going to come along and, and start doing this, you know, while I'm in, in this two and a half year process yeah. of figuring out how to sew fabrics or whatever. Yeah, a little bit. Um, back in the early nineties, some people started making what they back then called arrow silks, which are made out of spandex and they don't fit as smoothly as speed silks do, but they're certainly closer to form fitting than the flappy nylon or taffeta silks were. But the jockeys didn't like them because spandex is not a very comfortable fabric to wear, especially in the hot sun. Right. When you're moving around and sweating. And it's okay if you're a swimmer in a pool. But. Sure, sure. But when, you know, when you're trying to stay cool and comfortable, that's not something you want to be wearing all day in the hot sun. And so the jockeys never really cared for it. And they always preferred to have the looser fitting, airy nylon silks. Well, we came along and the Aerodimplex fabric that we use is really different from spandex. It's a lot lighter much more breathable, doesn't trap moisture against your skin. It allows it to wick away. And the jockeys love it. It's just it's very lightweight and stretchy and, and breezy, as they say. So the jocks love that kind of stuff. Was it hard to introduce something new to the jockeys like that? Or like, I mean, did, did you just have to get that one jockey who was wearing it? Or what was the process of, of sort of marketing it? Uh, that That's a good question. And I had no idea how I was going to market it. Uh, early on, Everything was Aerodimplex, Aerodimplex, Aerodimplex. Uh, but no one knew, ever heard of it. Right, I mean, that's just a brand so name. That, yeah, right? that didn't really mean anything to anybody. And so that was one of the reasons why it was so tough to get my point across. I did get a lot of pushback from people in the industry, even people that I worked with. I heard this will never work a hundred times if I heard it once. And these were people that would know what they were talking about. Why, why did they think that? Uh, they all gave me different reasons, m- most of which was ironically enough inertia it's just that, a traditional that, that, yeah nobody it, it's a very they're hidebound people they grew up doing it this way it's the way their daddy did it it's the way their granddaddy did it and by gum that's the way they're going to do it and so when you approach them with new technology or a new idea it's reflexively rejected you've really got to talk them into it there are some exceptions in fact i had been doing it for less than a year um we launched our product in late august of I guess 2013, 2014, I remember what you five years ago, right? That November, I got an email one morning. Sales were negligible that first year. I, did, I didn't sell hardly any product, but we were still in the process. And of, you were still working at AQHA. And I'm still working time, full time right? at AQHA. Yeah. yeah, and that's a whole other story right there. That's a, a little drama there as well. But um, we, I get an email one morning that says, Hey, we saw your ad in Trainer Magazine, and we need to get some, some of your new fancy silks for a couple of our owners. Um, give me a call. And then it was signed Jill Baffert to the phone number. That's it, right? And I'm like, hmm, Baffert. Well, that's obviously a real familiar name because the top trainer for 20 years now has been Bob Baffert. In fact, that's probably one of the only names that people that aren't horse racing fans can name from the horse racing business is Bob Baffert. He's the guy with the white hair and the sunglasses. And 
It was the trainer of Justify that just won the Triple Crown this year. Okay. Who was using speed silks right. for all three of those races. So, so anyway, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if that's the same Baffert. And so I do a little Wikipedia search on Bob Baffert, and sure enough, his wife's name is Jill. I go, okay. So I call her back. I leave a voicemail message. She calls me back, and yep, sure enough, that's exactly who it is. And that was our first big customer. It was one of our first customers, period. She and just, that is a big customer. That though. is a very big customer, and they continue to be a very big customer because they got all the best horses. You and, feel like that was a turning point in going from this business that might work to something where you knew, okay, I've, I've got a thing now? That was our first big break. Yeah. Because, again, it's, a, it's an industry that nobody wants to change. But if they see that Bob Baffert Racing Stables, for crying out loud, is buying this new kind of jockey silk, oh, now they're willing to look at it. I get that question a lot, actually, from trainers and owners. Hey, who else is out there is using this? It's still a fairly new product. We're just now getting to the point where if we go to a track and we say speed silks, most people on the backside know what we're talking about. But that was not the case two or three years ago. At what point did you know that it was time to go from, this is a side gig, mm -hmm. with, and, and you're still working full-time at AQHA, to devoting your full-time to you never, speed silks? I didn't. You never know that. That's one of the big questions. That so any, it still felt like a jump when you yeah, decided to Yeah, anybody that wants to move their hobby business from a hobby to a real business, usually they've got a full-time job because they have to. I get a mortgage and a couple of car payments and a beautiful wife that I need to keep in you know, pearls and furs, right? So... You have to know when to make that transition from employee to employer because you can't do it until you can earn a living at it. But the problem is that takes time. Well, I've got a full-time job that takes up 40 hours a week. And usually those two lines don't cross at the same time. Right. You have to be willing to set aside your full-time job before your small business can support you as well as your old job did. That's a really, really tough jump for most people to make. It really is a leap of faith. I'd like to talk a little bit about the role that, that living here in Amarillo played in your ability to, whether it's to start the business, to have that connection to AQHA, to make that leap from hobby to full-time. I mean, do you feel like living here is a part of that story? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, if I, <laughs> for all I complained about working at AQHA when I was there, if I didn't have that job, I wouldn't be doing this for a living right now. Because you were at the epicenter of, of horses. I mean, Yeah, exactly. At least, at least quarter horses, yeah. Quarter horse racing is probably about 10 to 12% of the industry on the whole. Another 10% or so is harness racing, and the rest is thoroughbred racing. So, you know, 80% of the industry is thoroughbred racing, and that's mostly who I serve. But getting that start in quarter horse racing was perfect. I actually thought that most of my customers early on, when I just first started selling, were going to be quarter horse owners. And the exact opposite is true. It took me forever to get more than one quarter horse owner under my belt. Most of them were thoroughbreds. Yeah. And to this day, 99.5% of my business is thoroughbred. Tell me about being based here. Is a lot of your business, is it all taking place online? Or are you having to travel and, and do face-to-face -face kinds of things? Oh yeah. No, we travel. Um, we travel whenever we can. It's not cheap because generally, uh, for instance, we're going to the Breeders' Cup. Um, at Churchill Downs this year. It changes tracks every year. And this year it's at Churchill and Louisville. And, you know, that's not a cheap trip. Last spring, we went to the Kentucky Derby for the second time. That is really not an inexpensive trip. That's freakishly expensive, as a matter of fact. But 
it's not always like that. I mean, we spent, um, you know, a four day weekend in New Orleans with one of our trainer clients hanging out at fairgrounds, you know, for a couple of days, drumming up business there. And that's a lot more affordable or Remington or Rudoso or whatever. And sometimes we'll go to a, one of the big, huge historical tracks. Like we were at Del Mar a couple of summers ago for Pacific classic day. That was just what you would have paid just to spend a weekend in San Diego. It didn't cost a thousand dollars a seat or whatever, like the, Stinking Kentucky Derby does. So you've you've had maybe three really unique tracks in your career. You you were a sports broadcaster, mm-hmm. and then you were doing marketing with AQHA, mm-hmm. and now you're doing this entrepreneurship thing. Yeah. Do you feel like there are places where those overlap? I mean, did did you learn something in the previous jobs to to kind of equip you for what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, my experience in sports media was what got me the job at AQHA in the first place. While I was there, I learned about the horse racing industry. I got direct exposure and direct contact with people in the industry that could help me when I was starting up my business. And since I worked in marketing, I did a lot of graphic design and I learned it there on the job. And now as I make silks, sit there in my office and make someone silks, I'm using Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator and all that kind of stuff to actually manufacture the product. And so my graphic design background that I got at AQHA also helped me pull this off. Did you have a a bent toward entrepreneurship Growing up, I mean, was was that something that you ever thought about opening your own business? I had, I honestly had never considered doing it before. I, when I graduated college, I just sort of assumed I was going to be in radio for the rest of my life because it's what I always wanted to do. I loved, I loved being in radio. I was great at it. But then, no, yeah, the industry said, no, Matt, you can't work in radio anymore, at least not in Amarillo. Uh, I got laid off from Cumulus in 06, mm-hmm. along with pretty much everybody else. And that Cumulus. industry has been in all kinds of oh, yeah, it's a, I, I, Now I'm so glad I don't work in radio. Because the only way you can make a living at it now is is if you're in a big market. Or, you know, if you're, you run the station or something like that. That's about it. When I graduated school in 95, radio was a legitimate career path. And it's not now. You know, radio stations full of either computers are doing all the work for you. Or it's just some part-time high school or college kid babysitting a board, pushing buttons. Right. And that's it. And that's what radio is these days, for the most part. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about the role this local business community had in sort of helping you get started. Because I know you were a beneficiary of of Enterprise Challenge and some of that funding. Uh, So tell me about that, about maybe just this area as an incubator of business and enterprise and, and entrepreneurism. The Enterprise Center is absolutely fantastic. The resources that I got from them, and I don't mean money, I mean education. Like saying, I want to start a business and I have no idea what to do. Yeah. They, they get, I got some grant money from the Enterprise Challenge. And as I was going through that process of putting together the business plan and, and, and going to other classes and whatnot, I heard time and time again from previous winners of the Enterprise Challenge, you know, the money's great, they say. But the real advantage is what I learned from the Enterprise Center. I'm like, yeah, yeah, just cut me the check. They were completely, they were 100% correct. It was about the knowledge that you need to start and operate a business. Because when I first started this, I I didn't know what I didn't know. Things would come along and take me completely by surprise. And I'm just glad it happened very early in the life cycle of this business. Because if I'd made mistakes of that magnitude now, you know, that I'm selling thousands of units a year instead of dozens of units a year, right. it, it, would be, it would be absolutely disastrous if I made some of those mistakes today. So I got to make them early. I got to learn everything the hard way, except for what they taught me at the Enterprise Center. Those guys are fantastic. 
So tell me where Speed Silks is now. What do you have in terms of the number of jockeys who are wearing them or, or horses who have won with those? I actually, um, <laughs> it's interesting that you ask that because I, I counted the number of customer folders um, on my computer a few weeks ago and it came out to like twelve or 1,300 wow. individual customers, depending on how you count an individual customer. And I was just floored when I realized how many. I'm like, wow, I've made 13, 1,400 different silks. And that's not like a, a single silk that you've sold. I mean, once they become your customer, yeah. they don't last long. They have to replace them. Yeah, and they, got, they, they thing, call right? back every you know, few yeah, months or few years, depending. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. And some of the big farms, obviously, they're buying a dozen units at a time. And they do that twice a year. God bless them. <laughs> Windstar is one of those huge customers that we have. If you watched... Mike Smith and Justify win the Triple Crown this year. The first two races, the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, he was wearing those white silks, right? Mm-hmm. That's Windstar Farms. And big customer of ours. Um, we're really happy for him. We gave him great customer service. And they, they told me, this is the best customer service we ever received. And we love your silks. We're using you exclusively from now on. Wow. And so now that's the, we're the only people to make silks for Windstar. And they buy a couple dozen sets a year, if not more. And they have lots of partner ownership groups, like, for example, China Horse Club, which when you saw Mike Smith and Justify win that third race, the Triple Crown, he was wearing the yellow and red silks mm-hmm. instead. That's China Horse Club. Those were also speed silks. What about outside the United States or North America? Do you have a client base there? Yeah, we actually have a, a marketing agreement with um, a small boutique horse racing operation in Sydney, Australia, and they market our product over there. And uh, they've got a six-country region that they market to, and then they get a cut of every set of speed silks that's sold in that six-country market. Just starting to expand into Dubai now, which is a great market to be in. Um, we're all over the Ring of Fire over there in the Asia-Pacific region. We're in Japan, and we're in Hong Kong, and obviously Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore, and Malaysia. Those are all huge horse racing markets. So tell me what's next. Are, are you just going to continue growing speed silks or do you have you know other ideas that nobody in the industry has thought about? That a, you're- a, a couple, but I don't know how viable they are. Um, I, I'm still trying to learn how to walk before I learn how to run, so to speak. We're doing very well with our silks right now. Silks are solid. I have considered expanding into a couple of other um, product lines just to serve the horse racing industry one of which was blinkers. If you see a horse wearing that kind of mask thing over his eyes and nose, those are called blinkers. And usually people buy their blinkers and their silks from the same person. Well, I don't make blinkers. And so last year I spent a few months trying to figure out how to make blinkers and it was way too problematic. The logistics were just made it impossible. So no, I'm not going to make blinkers. But there are a few other uh, product lines we might go into. And that's not even racing gear. That's just because they want to match, you know, have yeah, everything they, oh, look yeah. nice together. A lot of people don't care, but some of them want their blinkers to look just like their silks. And so they, they call me up and they say, I need blinkers. And I go, I can't give you blinkers. You think you will keep your business based here in the city? I mean, yeah, are, there's no are, reason are you... not to. Um, all of the work is done here except the physical assembly of the silks. And that's done in St. Paul, Minnesota. And the reason we do it there is because there's nobody in Amarillo that can do what we need to do. The hardware and knowledge base just doesn't exist here yet. Um, and I don't want to get into the cut and sew business, which is right. what that would require, and large format dye sublimation business. And so, yeah, no, the fabric is dyed and assembled in St. Paul, Minnesota, and then they ship the near-finished silks back to me. We finish them here, package them, make them look pretty, send them off to the customer. 
So all the fulfillment, all the distribution stuff is yeah, taking every, place. Right everything here. is here except the assembly. Are you surprised when you, you think of yourself, you know, going to college, wanting to get into broadcasting mm-hmm. to see where you are right now and, and doing this? Occasionally, I'm not the kind of guy who, who, st- who steps back and tries to get the 20,000 foot view. My wife is. And every now and then she's got to sort of tell me, hey, look, you need to look behind you and see where you've come and what you've done and accomplished. She told me this two nights ago. She said, you've, you've got to quit worrying so much. I'm the kind of guy who is always obsessing on what could possibly go wrong, right? Which is okay if you're trying to avoid problems at your, in your business. It's not great if you want to avoid stress or pat yourself on the back from time to time. Right. Because you're only worried about what could go wrong instead of what has gone right. And she's kind of my anchor. She'll bring me back. She'll say, hey, look, slow down. Calm down. You're doing great. <laughs> and I need that from time to time. So what you may not know is that I'm a copywriter. I work in the marketing industry. And uh, the majority of my clients are outside Amarillo. But when I have had the opportunity to work on local projects, some of the best stuff I've been able to do has been collaborations with Wilson Lemieux and Lemieux Company. Wilson is a homegrown videographer. He's got a ton of talent. His business is focused on creating content that evokes emotion and provokes action. So whether it's like a 30-second spot or a branded short film, Lemieux Company digs deep to understand your target audience and the story that you want to tell. And he combines that understanding with a track record of beautiful storytelling and compelling visuals. And and what you end up with is a creative project that gets you results. And I have seen this firsthand. He has made some amazing stuff. People end up talking about the stuff that he films and edits and produces. And I love working with Wilson. You can find Lemieux Company online at lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X. Lemieux Company. Better content, better stories. Okay, I'm back with Matt Darby of Speed Silks. Matt, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Okay. I'm going to ask you as my guest, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job is to answer those in whatever degree of detail you want to. <laughs> okay. Um, and and you, can, uh, you can go as, as broad or as wide or as deep as, as you'd like to with these. Sure. So the, the first one is unique to you. I've not asked this of any other guests, but I'm always interested in racehorse names. What's the best horse name you've encountered in the racing world? Oh, um, you can't no, say justified. I, no, I no, no, I can't. I, can't, it, I won't say that. I won't say that. That's a good question. I, when I first started doing this and was just first being exposed to the racing industry, that's one of the first things you notice is the weird names of the horses. Now I don't notice them anymore. But last year, <laughs> okay, I know the answer to this question. Last year, um, I, I saw a horse named, how do you like me so far? And my wife's boss, although he says she's his boss, uh, his name is Joel. And he introduces himself like that at parties. He'll say, hi, I'm Joel. How do you like me so far? <laughs> so I'm, That's so a I'm, good line. Yeah. So I'm going, I'm going through results one day and I see a horse named, how do you like me so far? I won a race and I immediately called him and told him. All right. <laughs> That's a good one. This is a question I have asked a lot of guests. What's your all-time favorite Amarillo restaurant? Ooh, uh, ooh, gosh. Um, I guess it would depend what kind of food I'm eating. If I'm eating Tex-Mex, I'm probably going to go to the plaza. Okay. If I want pizza, if I'm if I'm getting it delivered, it's Pizza Planet. If I'm going in to eat, it's 575. Okay. And in both cases, a very specific pizza. 
All right. That's about it. I love a good cheeseburger. There's too many places in town that make good cheeseburgers, but uh, I live really close to Blue Sky. And they serve tater tots. Mm. I'm a tots man. Tell me about your specific Pizza Planet order. Oh, it's they've got the, it's the Canadian bacon. Okay. It's the little tiny shaved pieces of Canadian bacon. I get that. I get the pork sausage, not the Italian sausage. And I get extra cheese. And that's what I get in a, in a pan pizza. Oh, man. I could eat that literally every day. It's okay. delicious. And at 575, it's the white bender. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah, good. it's good. What does this area have too much of? Uh, restaurants <laughs> you think we have too many Where it's, it's not a wealth of riches i, I, I mean? tell you no it's it's crazy i-40 I, I get because you know there's so many people traveling through town you're gonna have a ton of restaurants on i-40 but man this city is saturated with those things uh, there's a lot of good ones but come on people why don't you eat, cook your own food for once <laughs> what does the area not have enough of oh i think i'll be cute and clever and say baseball stadiums <laughs> okay well i uh I want to make sure you know that we can fix that pretty yeah, soon. Yeah, sure, sure. Are you excited about the baseball team? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, um, I have a business club. We meet every Monday for lunch at, um, I don't know what it's called these days. Well, the Amarillo Club. Whatever that building is called now. The uh, this week. First Bank Southwest Okay, Tower. got it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, we, uh, we eat lunch every Monday in the Amarillo Club. And when lunch is over, usually about a half a dozen of us wander over to the east-facing windows to see the progress. On you can the look right down yeah, on the, the dirt. Yeah. yeah, I think it's going to be a nice place. Do you wish that this would have been happening, you know, 15 years ago in the middle of your radio career? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. How I much sure would have had a lot to talk about. I know, I was going to say, sure. how much fun Woof. would that have been? You Woof. I think it's important for, and I'm getting, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. A market the size of Amarillo, a privately owned sports venue cannot be profitable. This isn't Dallas or Houston or Los Angeles. If you want a nice sports facility, it's going to be it's going to have to be paid for with public funds to a certain, to some extent. You you just can't run a profitable sports venue in a city with a quarter million people. Why why does the the public money matter so much in that? Because it's it can't come from anywhere else. I mean, if you don't have a fan base large enough to sell a minimum number of tickets all year round, just something else that's not going to happen at that baseball stadium because it snows in the winter here. You've, you've got to find some other way to fund it. It's imp- I'm a sports guy. And this is not a political statement at all. It's important for any community to support local athletics, professional athletics, high school, college, whatever. If you want that to be successful and you want it to bring people to your area, uh, you know, you've, you've got to keep it alive. And that's the only way it can be kept alive in a market this size. Uh, when was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Years and years and years ago. The last time I was there was when I worked for the hockey team, which was the Rattlers back then. Uh, I worked in the front office for them their second season at doing game operations and media relations. And um, the Big Texan was a big sponsor. And so we would go out there on a pretty regular basis. But I don't know. I haven't set foot in that place since then. But I'm a local. Why would I? Yeah, that's right. Um, I have been out to that new place adjacent to it that they own, that Starlight yeah, Ranch. Yeah, Starlight Ranch. Been there a couple of times. Nice place. What's your go-to local coffee shop? I don't drink coffee from a store. Is that terrible? I just don't. I don't know. I, I like I like the coffee I make in my kitchen at home. It's and delicious. that's your, your comfort coffee and you yeah, don't need it yeah. elsewhere. That and Starbucks is just awful. Awful. All right. I, w- I want to try to identify you with a certain team here. Pack-a-sack or toot and totem <laughs> Whichever one's closer. I live really close to the intersection of Hillside and Colder, and there's both of them there. Right. There's a toot and totem and a pack. So you of have sack. your pick. Yeah, I got my pick. And plus, there's that CVS drugstore right there. And on the fourth corner, 
the only other thing I might need, the liquor store. So whatever I'm, whatever direction I'm going, it just in, depends on yeah. which which direction yeah. the traffic flow that's is. That's right. All right. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Say you're you're, you're talking mm-hmm. to a, a jockey yeah. or you know a, a racing company, and they want to know where in the heck is Amarillo. Uh, usually, you end up talking about the weather, which is probably true regardless of where you come from. But um, Amarillo can be a tough sell to someone that doesn't live here. So I tell them we have four distinct seasons. We have got a beautiful canyon. And I think it's really important to mention the canyon, by the way, because there's otherwise no terrain. Mm-hmm. The reason Amarillo is where it is is because it's so flat. They wanted this to be a railway stop. And so they picked the flattest spot of land they could find in this area. And that's where they put the middle of Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, 20 miles to the south is some of the most gorgeous terrain you'll see in the state of Texas. But they didn't want to put it there because it didn't make any sense. If we could just pick up the city of Amarillo and move it to the edge of the canyon, bam, this place would be a paradise. It's true. Okay, uh, Matt, that concludes the eight straight questions. Uh, I want to end by asking you as my guest to endorse something locally. Mm. So what is something that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Is something specific or something general? It's up to you. You can go both directions. As much as I complained about having so many restaurants in Amarillo, it wasn't really a complaint because they don't have to go to all of them. We've got some of the best local restaurants I've ever eaten at. And I've traveled a lot for work. And so I've eaten at a lot of local restaurants all over the country. We've got world-class cuisine in this city that I think people should experience more often. Don't go to those chain restaurants. Find a nice local eatery, sit down, order something you've never eaten before. we got some great local restaurants. All right. That's a good one. Matt Darby, thanks so much for being on the Hey Amarillo podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Matt Darby for the interview. You can find out more about Speed Silks, whether you're a jockey needing Speed Silks or not. Uh, Go check out his site at speedsilks.com. Thanks to Lemieux Company for sponsoring the show. And uh, I want to say thanks to my executive producers of the podcast. This includes Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Daniel Davis, and Wilson Lemieux. All of them our executive producers because they sponsor the show through my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash heyamarello. They're part of my community there. You can find out more about this podcast at heyamarello.com, on Instagram at Podcast, also on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, give us a follow. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>